Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, where we stay at home at the moment and luxuriate in our dreams of cars and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories including car companies making equipment for coronavirus patients. We talk to an Australian startup about a new exciting way to recycle tyres. And just before the shutdown, we took two utes out onto the farm for a bit of testing in the tougher conditions. And we have some quirky news with Brian Smith. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or of course, you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City. So let's get going. We'll start with the news. We have heard about many protective measures against the coronavirus on public transport, in public places and at home. But don't forget your car. Standard car cleaning products such as car wash detergents, glass cleaners and silicon sprays aren't formulated to combat viruses. Household products and disinfecting wipes are more appropriate. It is best to check the label for suitability. Ammonia-based cleaning products, for example, can ruin vinyl surfaces. One rent-a-car study found steering wheels can have four times more germs than a toilet seat. Don't forget the exterior and interior door handles, including the bonnet and boot, the gear lever, climate controls, radio and other buttons, the rear-view mirror and your centre console, including the cup holders and your key fob, but always be careful with anything electric. With many of us having to stay at home, parents and children are looking for ways to do things without getting under each other's feet. There is a relatively common motoring device that can help. If your caravan is at home, consider using it more than you have in the past. Possible uses include setting it up as a home office, using the fridge and pantry to store additional supplies, thus reducing the number of times you have to leave home, turning the caravan into a parent's or children's retreat, making it a home classroom or a study area, especially for final year students. If a family member is sick, they can stay in the caravan to isolate from the rest of the family and set up like a holiday on your front lawn. Relax in your camping chair, sip your favourite drink, have a barbecue and sleep in the caravan. General Motors and some Formula One teams have committed resources to make ventilators for severe sufferers of the coronavirus. Others are getting on board with more products. While General Motors has been harassed about how quickly they can get production of ventilators up and running, they will also convert their closed Warren plant to mass-produce surgical masks an employee-led initiative in response to the coronavirus. Production will ramp up to make 50,000 masks per day within two weeks. It's hoped to eventually make 100,000 masks per day based on material availability. 
Ford aims to partner with GE Healthcare to expand production of GE's ventilators and will also make face shields for first responders to use N95 respirator masks. Toyota will help some companies increase production of ventilators and respirators. It will mass-produce 3D-printed face shields and also hopes to make filters for face masks. Often we collect traffic and transport data for short-term needs, but we need to measure and save data to understand the short- and long-term impact of the coronavirus. As many people are keeping trips down to a minimum, most authorities have stopped collecting transport data. But in the UK, the Department of Transport is urgently seeking local authorities' transport data to aid in the response to COVID-19. John Reid is the Managing Director of Oz Traffic, a major transport data collection business. We had one example, though, and it stands out as unique. Melbourne City Council, Friday, week before last, on the Friday, rang in and, and counselled an annual count program that includes bikes in the Melbourne CBD. But Monday, they actually rang back and actually thought it was a unique opportunity to actually collect some data. Innovations developed by car companies have applications in non-motoring situations. The Koreans have just won an award for a different form of technology. The Hyundai Motor Group, covering Hyundai and Kia vehicles, has just won a major award in the product design category, innovative product field, at the Red Dot Design Awards, the prestigious international competition now in its 60th year. But it was not for a better engine, gearbox or even exterior design. It was for an exoskeleton wearable robot called VEX. In biology, an exoskeleton is a hard external covering, such as a shell, to help support an animal. VEX is designed primarily for production line workers who need to work with their hands above their heads. Hyundai plans to develop additional ones that will enhance productivity and work safety, as well as support rehabilitation of injured patients. And that has been the news. Periodically, we are reminded of the problem of disposing of old vehicle tyres. Now, there's been a number of suggestions as to what we should do, but there is concern that the cure may be worse than the disease with a lot of side effects. Burning, for example, just adds to air pollution. Now, the Australian startup Green Distillation Technologies says it has a solution that is both effective and profitable. Their Chief Operating Officer is Trevor Bailey, who joins us on the line now. Trevor, thanks very much for your time. Good morning. No worries. Uh, now, we're told it's a big problem. How big is big? When you look at the global situation, there's about one and a half billion tyres reach their end of life every year. If we narrow that down to Australia, it's generally recognised as being one tyre per head of population. So we're around 26 million in Australia per year. Now, you already have a demonstration plant up and running, don't you? That's correct. It's actually the first module of six of our first commercial plant in Warren in New South Wales. You have some overseas interest as well? Uh, well, that's coming in thick and fast right now because uh, this is not just an Australian problem. It is global. And some of the other methods, as you alluded to earlier, 
are not exactly economically sound or environmentally friendly. So we're getting a huge amount of interest from overseas. Plus the fact that the Australian dollar is so weak at the moment, it makes it quite an attractive proposition. We'll come to some of those other solutions as well, but what are the basic elements of your process? The basic elements are that we have an air-free environment to which is added heat and the addition of heat creates a chemical reaction within the tyre which releases the carbon in a hydrocarbon combination which we can then condense into a usable oil and when all that's done we're left with a pile of carbon and steel. Processors have tried to have it burn with a more efficient process, but you're eliminating that oxidation, the burning effect. Is is that as I understand it? Yeah, that's correct. These recycle materials, they'll allay, I guess, some of the overhead costs, but is it enough for a profit or will you need to charge for each tyre? The situation with waste around the world is whatever the waste is, somebody has to pay for it to be processed. And in the case of tyres in Australia you pay a disposal fee, and it's that disposal fee that makes the whole project work. In the cases of our competition, where they cut tyres up, etc., they're almost the whole of the disposal fee plus some is used in the next process. So they're looking to put the price of disposal up, whereas in our case, because we have those three valid products at the end of the process, it balances itself out. Your plant is in Warren. Now, that's about 400 kilometres from Sydney, west of Sydney. It's out past Dubbo, 100 or more k's on the road out past Dubbo. Does it have to be in an isolated, a very isolated area? Not sure the people of Warren will appreciate the fact that... (laughs) No, no, I wasn't trying to be derogatory. (laughs) No, no, no. The wide open spaces, let me put it that way. The selection of Warren was more emotional than commercial. That's where our inventor was living and he needed to be near the process. The good folk of Warren have been of huge support and assistance to us over the development stages and that's basically the reason for Warren. Can you do the real big tyres, say, off dump trucks from a mine site? We can. That's a different process, a different design and we have a joint venture business to operate that and we have, in fact, processed seven or nine of those very big three-and-a-half to four-tonne tyres and with a very successful result and a very exciting process it is too. When you put in a, with four metres in diameter, weighs three-and-a-half tonne, you enclose it in a box and when you open the box a little while later, you're left with a pile of carbon and steel and a tank full of oil. It's a really exciting and gratifying process. The plant out at Warren, is that the first plant? Yep, that's the first of its kind in the world and uh, we've had numerous visitors from various parts of the world coming to have a look in order to um, expedite the process of moving it to their country. And there's some sizeable money being put up, isn't there? It certainly is. For plants overseas? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I was in South Africa a couple of weeks ago. We are talking about three to five plants there, which is you know, in round figures, 30 to 50 million Australian dollars. And the big one, of course, is the USA, where if you work on the rule of thumb of one tyre per head of population, we have about 300 million tyres. And uh, that's a situation that they are struggling with because they have 
traditionally been exporting a large percentage of those to India, where they get processed in less than desirable circumstances, or using it as tire-derived fuel in cement kilns. So we have an arrangement with a company in North America who are gathering the, the funding to build 10 to 15 plants. So we're talking 100 $150 million. In the scheme of things, given the, the enormity of the problem, forgive me perhaps for naivety, but 50 to $150 million, there's got to be a lot of people out there that would be jumping at what appears to be a worldwide solution. If Uber is worth billions, <laughs> is Australia slow to this? Absolutely. Australia is a very strange market in terms of financial, I don't know how to describe it, I was going to say acumen, but that's not fair. They're risk averse, or they seem to be risk averse. They don't have the confidence that anything new could possibly have been invented in Australia. It has to have come from somewhere else. How much do you need for Australia to go ahead? We're out in the market at the moment looking for 30 million Australian dollars. 30 million Australian dollars will complete Warren, build our second plant in Toowoomba, lay the groundwork for our third plant where we have a number of sites that are identified and kick off our mining tyre program and get the uh, organisation structure in the United States organised to take advantage of the $150 million that's coming there from there. Trevor, I wish you all the very best. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, and thanks for your interest. And that's Trevor Bailey, who is the Chief Operating Officer for Green Distillation Technologies that have and have demonstrated a process that can take old tyres from vehicles and turn them into usable products without creating too many, or if any, adverse side effects. Overdrive. For more information and past programs, go to drivenmedia.com.au. Well, at this time of the coronavirus and the need perhaps to get away and keep one's social distance, a better word might be spatial distance. It's not as if we are trying to become emotionally isolated from people. We thought that we might pop down to the farm with a couple of utes. Well, who better to, to arrange that than Rob Fraser? G'day, Rob. G'day, David. How are you? Good. I had a Toyota Rugged X Hilux. What was yours? I had the Nissan Navara Entrek Warrior. They're both mouthfuls, aren't they? Hero cars in the utility market, isn't it? Absolutely. We went west from Sydney, so that's up over the Great Western Highway, which is clearly west but not great, <laughs> over the mountains, which, of course, made it twisty, but then onto the open plains. Now, your Entrek Warrior doesn't have quite as many safety features as the Toyota. No, look, there's a, there's a few that it's missing out on, and a lot of that's got to do with where they are in their product life cycle and how easy little bits and pieces are to add without a full product revamp, if you like. But no, look, I missed out on a few little things like lane keep assist and also, or lane keep departure warning, 
and blind spot indicator. But, you know, some of those things are good, but also sometimes you think, well, I don't really need them if I'm concentrating on my driving. The Nissan didn't have the adaptive cruise control. I know you don't like it. I love it. It uh, just keeps it in mind. But I found also with the Toyota that the lane keep assist was quite aggressive. It did. It actually braked the car when you sort of wandered over the lane line, which we did to test it out a few times in a safe space, obviously. And I think sometimes that infringes on your ability to be able to control the car. It catches you out. You're driving along and suddenly whoosh. This is part of the review I made of the other Toyota, the big people mover, the Granvia. It really does catch you out. And I was following the car, the Toyota, for a while. And, of course, it puts the stoplights on when you wander out of the lane. It doesn't bring you to a crash stop. It just slows you down a bit, a bit like driving in treacle for a split second. But it puts the brake lights on, so it's telling people behind you you're losing a bit of momentum. Look, I think that part's good. I think with a lot of these safety features, there are good parts to it and bad parts to it. And I think the more you have in terms of uh, technology to drive the car, the, the, the chances are the less people may concentrate. Over the weekend, we also had a big Toyota LC70 troop carrier, which has got nothing in terms of safety features. And yet, you know, you sit there and you drive it, you focus, you concentrate as you're meant to do when driving. And to be honest, I didn't really miss any of the, the any of the safety features the others had. We'll talk about that uh, troop carrier later. It's interesting. Yep. It's a hero car, but in almost the uh, anachronistic sense. It's an anti-hero car. Anti, yeah. Now, driving on the highway, I said the Great Western Highway, it's a bit of a, a goat track in some ways. Well, it is in some places. I mean, over the mountains has certainly improved over the last few years, and it's taken them forever to widen the road. But you've got so many stoplights. It's unbelievable because you, you're essentially driving through suburbia. And the speed limit changes so much. It could be 60, it could be 80, and you don't really know. You miss it. You look at that and you look at all the time and money spent on that and you look at overseas countries where simply they would have just drilled through the mountains and put a tunnel through. The changing of the speed limit really enhanced the feature that certainly was in the Toyota and that is it told you the speed limit. That's good. That's always a handy feature. Just to remind you, it's not as if you willfully forgot but you suddenly think, well, hang on, did I miss something? And to be able to double-check it. It's that old style of road that when I grew up as a child and you're going on a holiday, you absolutely said a prayer of thanks when you saw the sign overtaking lane ahead. <laughs> Back then, trucks were even slower, but, you know, caravans and all those things, there are even some sort of, like, tractor-like things out on the road that you desperately needed an overtaking lane. But the only thing I'd say is some of those overtaking lanes, dual lanes, and they, they weren't a huge number of them, but the dual lanes were on very twisty roads. And so there's a great danger that people suddenly find the opportunity to overtake only to go crazy. I think Blood Hill, not on the Great Western Highway, but on the road north, was an example of that. The old road really had a very poor death rate. But can I say, once you get over the mountains, past Lithgow, out onto the plains, oh, I love that driving. Yeah, it's quite quite peaceful, isn't it? You sort of those rolling hills with sort of views into the distance. And luckily enough, there's been a bit of rain out there. So it was, it was reasonably green, which always enhances the beauty. 
A bit of rain means a bit of mud out on the farm. We'll talk about that next time. Rob, thanks for your time. Thank you, David. Overdrive. If you have a question, suggestion or comment, send an email to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Now there's some research that seems to indicate something fairly significant in that regard. Indeed, David. A professor of social psychology, Jan-Erik Longvist, wondered if his uh, hypothesis that there is a link between aggressive and antagonistic people and high-status cars like Audis, BMWs, Jaguar, Mercedes-Benz, etc. So he asked the question, is there, a, is there an association between, um, I guess, unpleasant people and luxury cars? And he actually says that there is. So his, his study in Finland determined that um, it's not so much that the vehicles make you obnoxious, but obnoxious people are more likely to buy an well, a expensive car as part of their identity and that uh, the survey uh, in researched 1,892 Finnish car owners. Uh, we, we should just add the word in men. But sorry, you were saying there's a survey? There is a survey, and that uh, out of this 1,892 Finnish survey respondents, they did find a strong uh, relationship between income, car make, and then major personality traits like neuroticism, openness, conscientiousness, agreeableness, and extraversion. And uh, while the luxury car companies didn't really want us uh, to comment on this, it does appear that their sort of customers may not be the most uh, attractive folk. Coincidence, correlation or causation, I think you've raised that as, as the point. But we don't want to necessarily ban those cars which have the most money spent on, say, safety features. But maybe what we need to do is ban angry men or ban angry people. In other words, almost to pick the character that makes for unsafe driving. It's been said, particularly even on bike ride, you know, motorbike riders, that it's the attitude that's really critical. So when you go and get your test, maybe you don't need someone to give you an eye test, but you need a profiler. A personality test, David. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, yes. To qualify. A personality test, and then you have something like a breathalyzer thing on your car to stop you driving if you're in a bad mood. Yes, and and, um, and and I think too that we've talked about autonomous vehicles and uh, the private ownership model for autonomous vehicles. So rather than the idea of sort of the autonomous taxis driving around that you own your autonomous vehicle, and I often posited that uh, that you know if you can afford to own your um, own autonomous vehicle, then this sort of space race would develop where people would try to hack or otherwise pay for more aggressive algorithms in their cars, which might bully the other autonomous vehicles on the road and it, uh, you know, make sure that, that they prevailed over everybody else. And I suspect that's you would see even more, to, to quote, uh, to quote a phrase, arseholery um, in that area. The technical term, Brian. Yes, yeah, where people who can afford to behave obnoxiously um, are given the the opportunity to do so. 
that actually raises the point about whether it's obnoxious or not as to whether a luxury car has higher technology that gives it priority by knowing when the light's going to go green or so on as to whether we as traffic planning and managers lose control of the system that it becomes controlled by people that have the particular technology in their car. So of the two options for how you, you sort of run an autonomous vehicle system, one is that you, know, you have an over, overriding set of rules that are applied to the road to access to it. So you control how traffic signals will work and how traffic will flow. The other model is that all of the different individual vehicles communicate with each other and ne- negotiate their space together. And under that model, then I think you have the opportunity for, for an aggressive algorithm to to force the give way from other vehicles so you could then have vehicles that that are prepared to accept a a smaller spacing or to uh, to speed or to drive more aggressively to force other vehicles to give way so i yeah i i think that's a real issue for the future let me add another dimension to it. One of the great problems of taking a phone call in the car is that the person calling you has no idea what circumstances you're in. You might be about to go through a, a difficult roundabout or a, an intersection. And, of course, quite often what happens with the person that is at work or driving for work or whatever, that the phone call might well be about work, which is the most distractive. Hmm which can make you angry or, or upset or, or tense or having an attitude of trying to solve a problem which has nothing to do with driving on the road. And so this notion that, you know, if you are in a high-powered position or so on, that maybe that's another reason not to have the ability to take a phone call in the car. And so it goes back to that point that if you're a, an, an angry man, if you're, if you're in a rush, you know, someone rings up and says, oh, that meeting, you know, you're five minutes late, when are you going to get here, suddenly makes for conditions of anger, frustration and that that have nothing to do with safe driving. Brian, lovely to talk to you. We will catch up again. Thank you, David. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Brian Smith, Trevor Bailey, Rob Fraser, Jordan Trembath and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, you can go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. And there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.